This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we have been touched by the better angels of our nature, and we're going to talk about Lincoln's first inaugural address. Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me this evening is Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. And Nick. Hi, internet people. All right. <laughs> internet people. All right. Um, we hope everybody... Well, I guess everybody's got to be an internet or... I don't know. Is it the internet on your phone? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. so. Never mind. Yeah, it is. In the digital universe, so uh, no matter to... whether you're logged into a actual, you know, service or 3G, 4G, 5. Aren't they coming out 5G? Anybody see that? I think so. I think AT&T has 5G coming out. So, uh, thank you for tuning in to the Rail Splitter. We are on episode 41, which is kind of hard for me to believe, but we've made it that far. Uh, and after 41 episodes, we're finally addressing the first inaugural. Uh, very important speech in Lincoln's career. But before we do that, just a little bit of small talk. Um, I just want to mention, I think the spirit of freedom is alive and well in America. Today at our school, Nick and I got to witness some young people uh, exercising their right to assemble and their right for a peaceful protest. And it was very, for me at least, inspiring to see young people politically active, speaking their minds, um, standing up for themselves. Um, very cool to see. We probably, I don't know, I'd say maybe 200 kids today uh, walked out of our school and uh, had a demonstration and very, very moving. There was like a sustained probably 10 minutes of silence. Um, they read the victims of the um, Florida shooting, all of their names, uh, every, every one of them, which was very moving. Uh, and then they went right back to the class. It was just uh, really, to me, a very cool experience. And I think it does apply to our podcast because uh, the spirit of freedom, I think, is alive and well in our young people, which is really good to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the key thing, I think, to take away is that they were organized, they did it, they did it the right way, and they came in, and, you know, they all left, like, the halls, like, all the kids walked through the hall. We had, like, classes still going on. They were very quiet, um, so they didn't really, I don't think they disrupted any classes walking out. Um, so yeah, I thought they did a great job as well. So I was very proud and impressed. Yep. So the land of Lincoln is was representing, and um, it was it was just really cool to see. So they, we we are in good hands with the next generation of up and comers, uh, which was pretty pretty awesome. So uh, Mary, you had shared with us something that you thought might be a good idea to start the show with, um, which was uh, a link to an article about which is kind of, kind of similar to things we've talked about from the Smithsonian Magazine about um, the way history is presented. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, just let me uh, find the article here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so basically the headline was, Two Museum Directors Say It's Time to Tell the Unvarnished History of the United States, uh, with kind of the subheadlining, History isn't pretty, and sometimes it's vastly different than what we've been taught. Um, and these are two historians. Um, one of whom is the uh, director of the African American History Museum of the Smithsonian, 
Um, so uh, I just think that uh, it was kind of a nice affirmation of history education, I think, now. And there is a bit of a debate uh, whether or, you know, the degree to which history should be um, multi-perspective or not. Um, and this kind of idea of America first, America best versus America for real um, idea. So um, it was nice to see two people kind of come together to, to send that message. Yeah, so when I saw the headline, I instantly thought like, oh, that's perfect, probably something good for us to discuss on the show. And, you know, there's some really good things that are said in the article. Like, there's one quote, we're taking children who are very young, exposing them to racist symbology, and then saying, but don't be racist when you grow up. So, you know, which is very, I mean, it's very similar to things that happen in Canada as well. We're exposed to the same things, but then we're told like, but don't be racist yet. You know, it's, it's what you're taught, right? And mm -hmm. how it's taught to you. So I just, and it talks about like mascots, myths, monuments, and memory, which, you know, monuments, like think of the Confederate monuments. And then there's also like the Civil War memory, which is very different from what actually happened um, with the Civil War and the myths that surround like the, you know, I guess the lost cause would be one of those things too. Mm -hmm. And just what children are taught. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, it was a great article it's on the Smithsonian. Is it Smithsonian.org? Uh, That's not yes. close. SmithsonianMag.com. Okay? And <laughs> yeah, they title the articles, Two Museum Directors Say It's Time to Tell the Unvarnished History of the U.S. And, and I know, and this is one thing I need to resolve to do a better job of. When I say I'm going to link things on the show to actually, when we're done recording, send a link out. So I need to remember to do that. I'll send a link out on our social media sites. Uh, but it is SmithsonianMag.com. Uh, really cool article, um, especially was it just I think it was just last week, maybe the week before. There was a middle school um, who had like a mural painted in their gymnasium of a lynching um, along mm -hmm. with a Confederate flag, um, and that just kind of existed forever until social media kind of spread it around. You know, it was one of those things like, oh yeah, this is just how we do things until it kind of got got national attention, and then it immediately came down. So um, there's work to be done for sure. Yeah, I saw that the uh, what you're talking about. I saw it on. I think it was Kevin Levin who posted it first, and he he writes some really great articles about um, you know the Civil War monument debate, and he has some really like just great things on his Twitter account about it. And that's where I first saw that the that was painted in the school gymnasium. Yeah, pretty pretty crazy stuff. Um, wait, 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 wait! I did not see this. Like they literally had a painting of a lynching in their school gym. There was a human being hung from a tree in like a cartoonish kind of character. Like, kind of, I don't know if he's kind of like running away or less like nearby holding a Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like in a, in a middle, I believe it was a middle school gymnasium. Yeah. In um, 2018? In yeah. 2018. Well, I'm not, I'm like, I did take a nap before this. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. And then they, they played on like, this is how we do things down here. We play ridiculous pictures and keep them in our gymnasium forever. Yeah, it was in it was in Tennessee, um, and uh, I'm not calling you liars. I'm just no. I just think a little <laughs> bit more background information. If if it's the the name of the gym, they kind of had a, a a gym title, I guess, which is the Rebel Barracks. Um, and I don't know, Nick, if you can see it or not. 
but um, it's a person yeah. hanging from a tree. Yeah. Um, a human being hanging from a tree, and there's like a person just kind of looking at at the person hanging from a tree, holding a Confederate flag. It's um, it has been removed from the South Cumberland, not middle school, elementary school. Oh. Yeah. So, um, the, the yeah, so it was a white man dressed in blue hanging from a rope from a tree branch and another person in a red jersey. So I think the idea was, like, that would be their sports opponent, I guess, hanging from the tree. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting time to be alive. So, um, but the fact that somebody pointed it out ended up getting it, you know, that's how it ended up getting removed. So that's encouraging. So work to be done. Uh, they still, they call the school, high school that I went to, they still refer to the gym as the reservation. And there's still a super racist mascot uh, that comes out and does a stereotyped over, overdone Native American dance. And it's super offensive, but it's not going away. So my high school was, I was a, a Viking. Oh, all right. What were you, Nick? You were like, was it the Trojans? The Trojans, the Trojans. baby, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Man, Here we grow. I wonder what high schoolers would say about that one. So, anyway. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of comic jokes. Yeah, so, I would. Right, that's uh, kind of what I was getting at, yeah. but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. To Although, get in, there were some teen pregnancy. You wouldn't think that was the case, but there definitely was. So, um, <laughs> I bet. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, it was and, not my child. And yeah, Nick and I school that we work at is the Huskies, and we're very proud of them, even right. though Huskies are not really indigenous to our region, but we still like it. So, um, moving yeah, on to the... There are two Huskies that live extremely close to the middle school. Right, they're the so. domesticated version. I don't think they're pulling any sleds or anything. Uh, no, I think their, their, their family line goes back to this area. All right. I believe. There you go. You can, back check. You can try back checking me on that, but I will refuse to listen. <laughs> So, for the topic of today's show, we are going to take you back to a Monday in March, March 4th in 1861, and talk to you about Lincoln's first inaugural. Um, sometimes, I think, might get a little bit overshadowed by the power of the second inaugural, um, but I would kind of, I would include it in, um, I don't even know if I would say the, tri I was going to say triumvirate, one, just to show everybody that I know that that's a word, but also... You know, you obviously have the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural. They kind of jump to mind. The other two speeches, I think, would be the Cooper Union and the House Divided speeches. Uh, very early in the podcast, we did a, an episode on the House Divided speech. I think that might have been episode two or three. Um, but I think that uh, I would I would put the first inaugural in terms of importance probably in the top three with the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural. Um, certainly, certainly in the top three of his speeches during his presidency. So, you know what does not overshadow it? What's that? Anything Miller Fillmore ever did in life. Okay, so <laughs> I was going to get to this later, Nick, but you brought it up, so I'm going to get to it now. About, oh yeah, it's up way for me. About, about a quarter of the way into the speech, um, Lincoln says this. It's been 72 years since the first inauguration of a president under our national constitution. During that period, 15 different and greatly distinguished citizens have in succession administered the executive branch of the government. So, 
it, it must be noted that Lincoln included Millard Fillmore in a list of 15 people he called greatly distinguished citizens. So there you go, Nick. That's kind of an indirect compliment for Millard Fillmore straight from Lincoln's mouth. What the hell is he going to say to the 14 great individuals and this one douchebag? <laughs> I don't know if that would have been period-specific uh, language or not. But... I, I believe that is also douchebag, which is actually, ironically, uh, Phil Moore's husky dog's name. <laughs> wow. All accurate information. All accurate information. So when I was uh, kind of preparing uh, for the show today, I was like, oh, wow, he... Uh, Kind of a little nod of respect to the other 15 people um, who had taken the office. Uh, greatly distinguished citizens. So, um, obviously, Buchanan was there, who was included in that, too, who was not a very strong president. Um, and uh, But that was kind of a nice nod to um, to his predecessors. It also kind of hit home to me, like, wow, there was we were still quite a young country when Lincoln took over. You know, 72 years. So basically a person's lifetime uh, and, and only 15 people had, had been presidents. Um, and, that's a, and that's including a whole bunch of one-termers. Uh, so um, it, is, it is pretty fascinating when you really think of it that uh, such a monumentous um, crisis faced the country just 72 years into its, um, into its life. Actually, 72 years. Of the, that's under the Constitution, not under the country itself, but still, um, pretty quick. I don't know. You think 17 years of like marriage, you'd have it figured out. 72 years of marriage, you have it figured out. And then they were like trying to get divorced. I mean, well, he literally—that's a nice illusion, nice little foreshadowing because he I does, he does talk you. about. I like that he talks about marriage later on in speech. Um, so, and he also mentions intercourse. Just want to throw that out there. <laughs> We'll have to talk about context, perhaps, but I need to say the <laughs> word intercourse. Um, so one thing that struck me, and I'd like to get you, uh, you, your thoughts on uh, as a team, um, how the, the start of the speech is so functional, I guess. I don't know if that's the word. He just says, fellow says in the United States, basically says, like, it's customary to deliver an oath. And that, that second sentence just jumps out at me. He just says, I do not consider it necessary at present for me to discuss those matters of administration about which about which there is no special anxiety or excitement. So basically, he's just like, I'm not going to talk about policy or, you know, like basically saying I'm not going to bore you with stuff that doesn't matter. Um, that kind of jumps right in. But but I think it's just funny that, um, you know, when people, when teachers, speech teachers kind of teach about speech writing and speech making, it's like, oh, you got to have that attention grabber. Um, and his attention grabber was like, in compliance with a custom as old as the government itself, I appear before you to address you briefly. And he said, and then the next sentence is, I don't consider it necessary to talk about anything, any mundane stuff. <laughs> so it's just kind of like a, an inauspicious start. Um, and then he kind of slowly gets into it. So I, I think the way that he starts that and then um, immediately just talks about in that third sentence, which is really where he's getting to the content. It's about 10 words in where he specifically addresses the southern states um, and then specifically talks about their reaction to a Republican administration and how they feel about their property, peace, and personal security and that they may be endangered. Um, it was kind of interesting how he just kind of jumped right in and, then, and went for it um, in the first part of the speech. 
Yeah, I also made a note, like, I also thought about that, too. And also, I, I think this is a valuable thing that we're bringing up. Um, I wish more faculty meetings just jumped right to the, you know, let's get rid of the mundane stuff at the faculty <laughs> meeting. Uh, so Rail Splitter Nation, we're talking about things that exactly two of us are familiar, so apologies. Although we do any other educators listening, they all know faculty meetings are the shits. Just for so, for the record, we start our faculty meetings with like marriages and babies that have happened in our staff. It's very nice and endearing, and everybody likes it. Like I said, <laughs> get to the meat and potatoes of stuff. So, uh, but yeah, he does jump right into the meat and potatoes, um, and some of the wording I think is it's it's strange because he's so. Um, he, he puts it right in, in, in your face a little bit when he's talking about, you know, he's being really real about the fact that there's these issues going on. But then he kind of says things that are weirdly cryptic. Like he's like, um, he talks about, uh, there's never been any reasonable cause for such as apprehension, basically saying, you don't need to worry about me. Um, there's ample evidence to the contrary. And then the way he says it, he says, it is found in nearly all the published species speeches of him who now addresses you. Like, that, that's such a weird way to refer to yourself. Like, just say, like, you're not going to find that in any speech I've ever given. The way he worded it is, or, or you'll find that in any speech that I've ever given, he words it as, it is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe that was consistent with the way people spoke in the mid-19th century, but it, it kind of strikes me as strange. Um, and then he quotes himself by saying, I do but quote from one of those speeches when I declare that. So... It's a really, really long-winded way to say, one time I said this. Um, and then he talks about, um, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Much has been made of that sentence, and I think the lead-up to it, um, and I think that um, by him quoting himself previously, it's one of those things that Lincoln t does sometimes where he has a master plan in the back of his mind and he is politically smart enough to know how to do it and knows to knows that if he goes in the, in the first inaugural and just comes out and says, I want to abolish slavery or I want to put us on a path to abolish slavery, that that's not going to work and would ultimately doom the cause. So he kind of just skirts around it a little bit and says, um, you don't need to worry about me. One time I said this, and this probably sounds like something you guys like, um, and it's true, but he doesn't really, I don't think he really takes full ownership of it. I think he's kind of already starting to, to kind of drive that wedge into slavery very, very, very subtly, um, which is part of his political genius. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And the thing with the first inaugural that I try, like I had to remember when I was, like reading it and researching it was that the civil war hadn't even begun yet. So he at this point can't use those war powers that he had as president. At that point he couldn't get rid of slavery, but once the civil war started, you know, the game has changed. And that's what I had to keep, you know, kind of like, okay, things are different when he makes this speech than what they were, you know, five weeks later when the first shots of the civil war were fired at Fort Sumter. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point, Mary, because it's important to note that um, he's a, he is addressing, I mean, states have seceded 
but it's still kind of like, did they really secede? Did they declare that, did they declare that they've seceded? There's really not like an established government, you know, it was still kind of up in the air. And he kind of, you know, says in the speech that we'll take you back. And I don't, not only that, but like, he kind of states that he doesn't believe they even have a right to do it in the first place. Like you can't just leave. That's not, you don't have the option just to leave from a legal sense or according to the constitution. So I think he kind of sets that up where he can say, well, because you left now I can do not necessarily, it is war powers like technically, but I also think like politically and strategically, strategically, um, it would be like, okay, I know they're going to leave. Like, they're not coming back. More states are going to go. If I act as if I, you know, and I'm sure he did want them back, but if you, you know, if I really act as if I want them back and then tell them if they come back, nothing's going to change, knowing that they're still going to leave, I know that once they leave, I can then treat them the way I want to treat them and hopefully start to bring it about an end to slavery. It's, you know, I think it's it's an awful lot about the long game. Um, you know, I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but I think that it would be consistent with how things kind of played out with, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation not coming too far, you know, a couple of years later, but um, looking at very, very much rooted in the fact that they seceded being the justification for his ability to do it um, because they were in rebellion. I'm going to disagree with you guys a little. I don't think, I think it's nice to think that was this long game that he had the plan. I, I don't think that was the case. I, you know, um, I just don't because I think, you know, you're getting to office. I think he would have kept them if they decided, I think he has a hope. Maybe if he starts taking the office, he can maybe talk them back where it's not going to be as drastic as things ended up being. And I think his stance evolved over time. I think he thought slavery was eventually going to lose out because he points to this at the end, you know, uh, stuff with the Constitution, you know, right and wrong always plays out. We have a foundation. We have a system that's built for right to come up on top. Mm -hmm. Is that, That's how I kind of took the end of this whole speech, which I'm sure we'll get into more. So I think he viewed it as slavery is going to fail. All right. And I don't think he was looking to necessarily be the one who abolished slavery. I think he thought it'd be more of a natural progression at this time. I think it's. I think we want to believe that he had this master long game, mm -hmm. and I just don't think he did at this point. Now, when the emancipation comes in and stuff like that, because, and then also we have you know some generals that took some major stances that he could have backed, and then he was pretty harsh on them, you know, um, in the actions that took place, you know, with Fremont and stuff. You know, maybe doing that for political purposes. I think it's probably in between kind of what I'm sounding like and what you guys are thinking. It's probably more in the middle in reality. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I think you're right. And I probably did overstate the master plan. Like, obviously, he can't look into a crystal ball and see everything happening. I, I believe that he didn't think for a second they were coming back. You know, like, I think his appeal to have them come back, I think everybody kind of knew, like, they're not going to be like, oh, you make a good point. Okay. Like, that's just not going to happen. I don't think he quite, you know, I think a lot of it was based on hope or at least like kind of the feeling like, okay, if this goes down where we're in the Civil War, that's going to give me the opportunity to do a lot of things. Now, if Civil War breaks out and the Union crushes 
the Confederacy at First Manassas or First Bull Run um, and decimates their army right then and there, you know, and kind of crushes their will to make war in a major battle, who knows what would have happened, right? Like, that could that could have been decisive very, very early in the war. Um, the fact that it didn't go that way, I think, may have complicated things or not. You know, it could have been, they could have potentially crushed their will to make war that early, or at least in his mind, if they won the first decisive battle in a lot of other people's minds, it would not have lasted very long. Um, I and don't they destroy them at Manassas. Do you think, or bull run, however you want to word it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that he gets rid of slavery in the South? No, no. I mean, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Like that would be really difficult for them to say, like, let's say they crushed. I, I don't think it would have ended quite so quickly. I think it would have probably maybe, maybe kind of devolved into like a guerrilla type war where it was like, you know, n- no real traditional big battles, but just kind of more trying to not quite a traditional war with thousands of troops fighting thousands of other uh, troops on the other side. Um, but I don't know. That's a good, what if like, it, you know, if, if the war machine in the North was able to mobilize quicker than it did and to really crush the South with military might right away, you know, would he have had the opportunity in the political capital to, to end slavery? I think the answer is probably no. Um, who knows though, what would have happened for the other three years of this presidency. It's not like you sit around waiting for another catastrophe. Um, yeah, yeah I kind of feel like I don't think it, I, I agree with you that I don't think he, he would do it. And I think he would try to put the union back together the next three. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it would definitely, the expansion of it would definitely be, that would almost be a done issue. You would think. Otherwise, then it just blows up again down the road. Yeah, and but. I think I think that's I think that's probably the most likely scenario because the likelihood of them rising again um, was almost none because they because you went through four years of pure hell with mm-hmm. you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying and cities burned and you know like there was just not no. No chance that in any of those people's lifetime it was going to happen again. Whereas if it was like a quick thing, and then they go back and they try to try to create a union again, and, it, and it, the slavery issue continues to come up and come up and come up, you know, while while we're expanding westward, while new states are being admitted into the union, uh, yeah, no, I can't I can't imagine that it wouldn't have happened again and a catastrophic war would have had to have happened at one point. I think that, I think that that war was necessary to end slavery unless, I mean, it would have died a slow death, but it would have been pretty darn slow. I think. See, it it just goes back to the dark night returns. Sometimes things have to get worse before (laughs) they get better. And the second thing I want to point out, I think when you said burning down cities, Mary smiled because it reminded her of sure. I almost almost gave a little shout out for you. Yeah. Yeah. You did. Yeah. I thought, Oh, Sherman. (laughs) As we just alienate all our, our uh, you know, southern listeners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I I agree about the whole like things have to get what get worse before they get better, and that's um, that's something I kind of took away from reading the first inaugural um, in researching this. Is I think he, I think Lincoln knew what was going to happen, that there was going to be civil war, and that his. I don't know if you can really call them pleased to the South or just trying to, you know, 
like ease their anxiety as I read um, in a few books that I, I looked in, um, but that I think he knew what was going to happen. That yeah, it would happen. Yep, I agree. Um, so kind of going into the second, you're kind of the first third or so of the um, inaugural address, which by the way, very short speech as far as inaugurals go nowadays, like very short um, and very much uh, direct. And like he, you know, like he promised in the second sentence, he talks about nothing other than slavery, secession, and um, an appeal to, to those who decided to secede. Um, so, which I like, you know, there was no need to talk about his plans for land grant colleges or for, you know, for, you know, internal improvements or the remodeling of the Capitol or anything like that. It was very, very, um, purposeful in its delivery and in its writing. Um, so he does spend some time talking about the rights of the states and slavery. Um, I think that a lot of this is kind of, you know, this, I think that I think it's important and, um, there's a reason that none of the lines from this speech are ever pulled out and like put on Lincoln quotes anywhere. Like he doesn't really talk about slavery in any real, um, like he doesn't take a position. He just kind of beats around the fugitive slave thing a little bit. You know, he talks about the rights of states, but he's really not taking a position, you know, very political, very, um, you know, I think, I think there's, there's, to me, it feels like an attempt where he's like, you know, abolitionists are going to be upset with it. Pro-slavery folks are going to be upset with it, but neither one of them are going to say, this was such a, you know, this was so much on the other side. This is so wrong. You know, he's still trying to kind of play that middle of the road. You know, I don't like slavery, but I just don't want to expand it. I just, you know, I agree with the Fugitive Slave Act, but it's difficult to enforce. And there's different states and who knows which states can enforce, you know, enforce which states laws. And, you know, it talks about germs, prudence and all that stuff. Um, but he's not actually coming out and declaring slavery is wrong. He's not declaring here's my policy on slavery. He's trying to appease, or at least appear to appease, uh, pro-slavery folks in the South. Um, and I think that's why, reading through it, a lot of it, like, it didn't really jump at, jump out at me a lot. Not much of the middle, like, not much of the first third was like, wow, you know, this is really fascinating stuff. I was just kind of like, okay, just let, let's get to, get, to the, get to the point here, get to what you're talking about. And I think that may have been by design. And, no, I mean, yeah, I agree with you there, too. He's kind of, he's definitely playing the middle game here. I think, you know, um, a lot of times you always got to give diplomacy a shot, which he's doing here, trying to appease both sides. Um, he kind of plays the game with the fugitive slave law, like, all right, the whole idea that, it, you know, kind of the fugitive slave law is the thing that kind of broke the, you know, the camel's back in a sense. Um, you know, uh, with Dred Scott and all that stuff. But I, there's something where he talks about, all right, so you want your property back, but what about these people who are now in this free state? Don't they have rights too? So kind of like bringing up this um, point there, kind of where he felt like he was taking a side in it a little bit. Um, you know, basically saying it's kind of a contradiction itself enforcing this Fugitive Slave Law Act with the country divided on the things that it is. It's kind of the one thing that stood out for me from that middle passage. Yeah, he says, um, uh, 
there's a you know the enforcement of that clause in the Constitution, which guarantees that the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in several states. You know, so it's kind of he yeah he does definitely start to point out the contradictory nature of slavery existing in a country that purports to be free. Um, and I think that there's the shift. There's the sh a shift in focus when he taught when he gets into that line that, that I talked about with the Miller Fillmore thing. You know, he talks about, oh, it's been 72 years since we've had a president. There's been distinguished citizens serving there. They've conducted it through many issues with, moder you know, with varying levels of success. Um, but they don't have the same task before them. And the peculiar difficulty that this situation has, which was a disruption of the federal union. So he kind of starts by saying some nice things like, oh, we've, we've gone through a lot. We've had a lot of distinguished people in this office, and they've gone through a lot. And then he kind of goes into the, the idea of dissolution of the union, and he very clearly just comes out and says, you can't secede. Like, it, like in his belief, you cannot leave the union. It's just not, like, it is not possible. Sim similar in a way to the House Divided speech, um, where um, in the House Divided speech, he said it'll, you know, it'll, a, a house can't be half slave and half free. It'll either become all one thing or all the other. I think what he's saying now is it can't be a house if it's divided. It's either going to crumble to the ground or stay a house. You can't, you can't leave this. So you know that that argument that you either destroy the whole thing or you stay was was basically what he's saying, which is a pretty harsh statement, um, and basically saying that uh, the universal law and the constitution of the union of these states is perpetual, like it is forever. You cannot leave. Um, and of course he has a great way of saying it instead of saying you can't secede or I don't believe you should secede. He always talks about union and the perpetuity of the union. And basically, and he says it being impossible to destroy it except by some action not provided in the instrument itself, which is true. There's nothing in the constitution that says if a state wants to secede, they need a three quarters vote or blah, blah, blah. There's no instrument in the constitution that allows for secession. So from a constitutional and a legal standpoint, secession was illegal or at least not addressed at the, you know, at the very least it was not addressed. Well, he makes the argument that like no government, no government ever has put itself together with a loophole for you to destroy it from within. It's kind of the argument he's making. And then he goes even further saying you can't do this. And then why would you? Because all you would do is continue to destroy yourself over and over and over and over again. Because once you, you know, um, have this come, you know, once this seed blossoms, then how are you going to stop it from blossoming year in and year out in your own country? Because now every time that somebody disagrees and think you're doing something wrong, that's just going to lead to another section breaking off from your country, another section breaking off from your country, so on and so on. And next thing you know, you know, you're just a, a a billion small little entities that have no power whatsoever. And that's because I think he saw, like, you know, he saw, like, the union as being a contract that you can't just leave it. You can't break it. It's either we are all in it or we all agree to leave it. Because when we were all separate, it didn't work. And we need to be together. Yeah, and I think that, um, well, Shelby Foote makes that point in the Ken Burns documentary, like his belief was that n none of the South would have ever signed the Declaration of Independence 
if they ever believed that they couldn't get out. Like if they if they thought that they could get out, you know, they I think his argument at least was that they felt that there was a loophole. And who knows there may have been, but you know, we're you know, it's what, 80, 80, 90 years later, um, it's a little bit different, you know, like you, you, you have to stay. It's, it's, you know, like right, like nowadays, it's even more absurd to even think about a state, uh, a state seceding. Um, the one thing about the speech specifically um, is I, I like how he builds and he builds and he builds this, this argument. He, he really does spend a bulk of the speech hammering home this point that this is not a union if people, if states can leave. And it's, you know, that's, that's just not what a union is. Um, and he does compare it to a marriage saying like marriages can have divorce. This can't because, you know, when, when two people get divorced, they still remain people. When a union gets separated, it no longer is a union. It no longer is a country. It's something else. Um, so which I think is a good metaphor. Um, but he also is pretty, pretty strict and pretty strenuous on the point that um, if you leave, there's going to be bloodshed and it's on you. Mm-hmm. It's on them. It's on the South. Uh, basically saying if in doing this, there needs, there needs to be no bloodshed or violence and there shall be none unless it be forced upon the national authority. Um, so he does a really nice job and this might play well into our Fort Sumter episode because he really does a nice job saying if this happens, y'all brought it on yourself, um, and the national authority will respond because it's a it's an affront to the national the the authority of of the national government. Yeah, I agree with you. He does a great job building up the structure of this argument, like he always does. We've talked about this multiple points. You know, he's using kind of his legal mind, but also using his, his simplicity on how he kind of words stuff, phrases stuff, and then yeah, he he does. I mean, he just takes a tough stance and. Um, saying you can't do this, you do. It's your fault. And oh, by the way, it's fucking dumb as hell because you'll never, <laughs> you'll yeah, never survive anyway. Right. So it's kind of a you know a mic drop moment. This whole speech, especially towards the end, you know, just like, hey, dumbasses, uh, don't make us do this because we will. Yeah. And he, damn it, he did. He's basically saying that the North you know, like, well, the Republican administration will not be the aggressors in this at all. And I think it, this this point specifically is interesting because the reception of the speech is as important in the speech itself. And many, many people in the South took it as a, as a slap in the face, mm-hmm. a complete denial of their rights, basically saying, almost challenging them, like, Almost like, a, what are you going to do, hit me? You're not going to hit me. You don't have the guts to hit me. You know, like, I'm not going to fight you, but if you, you know, you're not going to hit me. You know, basically kind of taunting him like that. Meanwhile, you've got a lot of people in the North saying, like, what the hell was that? That's, you know, you weren't you weren't really very harsh. You didn't say come out against slavery. You welcomed them back into the Union. Like, what are we, what is going on here? Um, so he actually took more heat from his constituents, you know, or people who, who people who believe they were his constituents, then, you know, so like really he didn't get a whole lot of support from, from either side, again, trying to be moderate. Um, so I, you know, I think that that's an interesting point too, that, that people, in, a lot of folks on the North thought it wasn't harsh enough or wasn't harsh at all. And then a lot of people in the South were like, you know, thought it was just, just an act of war almost. 
And it's interesting that you raise that point because his initial draft of the speech from what I w was reading was, um, I think David Herbert Donald termed it as being very warlike. And then he gave the draft to a few people to read, one of them being Seward, his secretary of state. And Seward said it had to be more like almost sympathetic or conciliatory, like towards the South. And th that's why we have the inaugural that we have, like one of those huge influencers on it was William Seward. Yeah, and that's um, that's a point that's very much present in Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, mm -hmm. Team of Rivals, and in Burlingame's work, uh, Abraham Lincoln, A Life. Um, I think this is a speech more than any other that's got Seward's hands in it um, in a good way. Um, and I think that it was, um, Seward was surprised, I think, to be offered such an important role in writing the speech. And in, you know, I think he was honored in a way that Lincoln kind of even asked him to read it over and provide the feedback. And, I, you know, there are sections that he wrote um, and there are, you know, the general tone of it, I think, is largely influenced by Seward. Um, and I think that that was kind of the first step toward toward their relationship um, in a real way, starting off in the administration. Um, but I do think it was still pretty, pretty strongly worded. You know, even though it was a bit of an olive branch, they certainly didn't take it that way. But it gives him quite a lot of um, political capital, I think, to say, like, hey, listen, look at the inaugural address. Like, I offered them an opportunity to come back. Um, literally, the first thing I did as president was to say, if you, I don't think you're allowed to secede, but you're, if you come back, you know, it'll work. Um, and no, I think knowing that they wouldn't, but um, I think that it kind of helped enable him to use those war powers in the way that he did um, because he can say, that he offered him an opportunity not to be in this situation. Um, Agreed. The, 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 one, uh, the one line that I really like that he kind of builds up to, um, you know, he talks a little bit about the, about the minority and the majority, which I'm not 100% on board on necessarily. Um, I understand what it means in the context of his argument, but um, I'm not a huge, like, the, minor the majority should not always rule because especially if they're stepping in the rights of the minority but in this case the south felt that that was happening and it was probably a good thing that it was happening but anyway i like his line plainly the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy i so love like, that line <laughs> so now at this point in the speech we're not pulling any punches like now we're just you know we've built this argument about constitution we've built this argument about what what it means to be in a union. We've given some, you know, some metaphors, um, talked about what the national authority is and what the constitution says. And then he just kind of says like, you know what, <laughs> this is anarchy because if you don't, if you're disrespecting or, di or not acknowledging the constitution, essentially what you're saying is that there is no government. Like if you get to choose whether or not you're part of a government, then there is no government. You know, because if I choose, if I if, if laws exist for me to choose or not to follow, then there are no laws. Um, so I, I think that I agree with them 100%. I think it's a great line. Um, I think that our kind of view of anarchy is a little bit different than what anarchy actually is. Anarchy just means mm -hmm. there is no government. So what he's saying, it, it doesn't mean that there's just going to be like murder in the streets and mayhem. What he's saying is if you don't respect the, the rule of law, then there is no law. Um, if people just disregard the law, 
than it, than it is in effect anarchy. Um, but it's a brilliant way of saying it. No, great quote. And then, uh, you know, I really love how he finishes the whole speech. He really kind of plays off kind of the power of the Constitution and what I think makes our country, you know, um, you know, that allows our country to be, you know, one of the best countries, if not the best country in the world, is that we have a system. He kind of makes the argument um, wickedness or folly can very seriously, or he's saying no administration by any extreme of wickedness or folly can very seriously injure the government in the short space of four years. And then he's kind of attacking the morals on all this. And he makes the argument if you're on the right moral side of this, because of the foundations we have by the Constitution, it will change for the better and you will win out over time. And that is the argument that gives me, you know, um, hope, especially, you know, with the current stuff going on for the future. And I think our country has shown that, mm-hmm. you know, we've definitely made some mistakes. We maybe have been quick to action. But I think over American history, what we've seen and hopefully will continue to see is that the moral right side wins out more times than not in this type of government system than any other system that's been created by mankind. And I think, and that's really what I took away most was kind of from this last, what is the last, not the last paragraph, but the last three paragraphs before that. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, that kind of hit home, really made me think about stuff. Um, you know, um, have a little bit of patience and keep consistent with your message. Um, you know, and that's kind of, I think what we saw, you know, speaking of what happened with the young kids, you know, there's a month removed, they're still pushing forward. And if they continue this and they are morally right, it will play out in their favor down the road. Yes. And I think Nick, I think you make a great point and that's what, that's what the, like next part of the speech does after he talks about you can't succeed that's anarchy that's not what this is that's not that's a disregard of the constitution then he kind of builds it back up with this argument that saying that like you can't leave the government you can't leave the union but then he kind of brings it back to define what the government is and what the union is when he says this country with its institutions belong to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. Basically saying it's the people's. I think this was a really kind of a long-winded way of saying of the people, for the people, by the people, um, or maybe just being a more detailed version of saying that. But basically when he says, I fully recognize the rightful authority of the people over the whole subject, basically saying, the people have the power over the government. So if you want it changed, it's yours to change. It's not, you know, and, and I think that that's a very important point, especially in the context of this. Like, if you want it changed, you need to change it, as opposed to if you want it change, you can't just leave. <laughs> that's just not, that because if you leave, it is no longer a thing. Um, and then he kind of drives that point home when he says, you know, and it brings in some religion, religious aspect to it, if the almighty ruler of nations with his eternal truth and justice be your side of the north, be on your side of the north or on yours of the south, that truth and that justice 
will surely prevail by the judgment of this great tribunal of the American people. So what he's saying is the Almighty, even the Almighty, even God's will, will be the will of the people over time. Um, and I think that's exactly what your point was making, Nick, that that second, or like really the last third of the speech is kind of defining what is government. And, and it's a very detailed, much more detailed way. I don't think it's a long-winded way, but a detailed way of saying of the people, for the people, uh, of the people, by the people, for the people, basically saying it's y'all's. Like if you want to change it, if you want to make it better, or if you want to destroy it, it belongs to you, but you can't just decide to leave it. It either needs to change or, or, or die. It can't just be for some and not for others. I completely agree with that. And the one thing that I wanted to get back to was just the hope um, that Nick brought up. And in reading this speech, even though it's, you know, five weeks or so away from the first shots at Fort Sumter that began the Civil War, there's still this like glimmer of hope in it. And that kind of goes, you know, you can look at the second inaugural and there's hope in that speech too. And the one thing that I always find with Lincoln, and I think this is why, um, or one of the reasons why he's such an amazing human is there's always some glimmer of hope there, you know, in what he says, some positivity that we will get through this and we will be better for it. And I think this speech is starting to hint at that. Yes, very much so. Um, and then the ultimate close of the speech is going back to it's on you the south it's in your hands my dissatisfied fellow countrymen and not in mine is the momentous issue of civil war the government will not assail you you have no conflict without yourselves without being yourselves the aggressor uh, and then he goes on to say we are not f enemies but friends we must not be enemies um, again i think this is kind of his his warning, his, you know, thinly veiled warning, um, while at the same time saying he calls them his fellow countrymen, um, and, he's, and he promises that the government will not assail them, um, and basically saying you have no conflict without yourselves being the aggressors, um, really draws a line in the sand and says, this is, you know, it's not going to happen unless you do it. And then, of course, he closes with the most memorable line and arguably the best line, um, when he says the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when touched again as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature um, which is just such a brilliant statement that can be applied to so many other things and so eloquently worded to say kind of what nick was alluding to earlier the will of the people will be touched by divinity, by rightness, by morality, to see what is right. Um, and obviously we're still working on that. Um, and we've made quite a lot of progress over the last 200 years, but uh, not there yet. Yeah, I think to stick it back on this, I think another thing that kind of stands out to me in a lot of Lincoln's speeches is just his belief in the Constitution, that, you know, it did provide this avenue. It gave us the ultimate structure, foundation, which to build off of. 
And, you know, they, he, he just truly believed in it, um, the Constitution, what it said, you know, to the point where he felt like he couldn't just get rid of slavery in the South, you know, at this moment or earlier. Um, so I, I think it just truly shows just how much the Constitution meant to him and how much he looked to it for guidance mm-hmm. on things. And he was able to find the positivity in it. Um that just kind of st- stood out to me as we're talking about it, thinking about it and reading through this too. Yeah, and I think that just the respect for the founding documents as a whole too, because this speech yeah. is very much rooted in the Constitution. Gettysburg Address is very much rooted in the Declaration of Independence, um, which obviously are you know kind of held up as you know the two major founding documents. But um, I think like his arguments against secession are largely rooted in the constitution mm-hmm. and his arguments against slavery, at least from a moral standpoint, um, are largely rooted in the declaration. Yes, I agree with that. 100%. I agree too. So, and you know, I think that the better angels line is, you know, it's often put on that one is put on t-shirts and on, you know, quotes that people throw out a lot, but it's just, you know, I think that, it's so much more than just the better angels of our nature line. It's, you know, the, um, the mystic chords of memory. I just, that's just such a great phrase mm-hmm. and it's just so powerful. I just have so much respect for him as a writer and a speaker, but also to think about that, the mystic chords of memory, there's kind of this idea of oneness that the American people are together. Um, and he's hoping that these mystic chords of memory will be touched by either rightness or the kind of some sort of, um, divinity or some sort of common purpose um, that he kind of embodies in this better angel angels of our nature. Um, but yeah, just such a brilliant way to end the speech. Um, mm-hmm. For sure. So, um, and the most memorable line for a reason. I completely agree with you, Jeremy. And I think he's basically saying that he, he knows that this will happen. It might not be quickly, but that it will happen. Yes. Yep. Um, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of a, in a nutshell, kind of us walking you through the, the first inaugural from March 4th of 1861. I do want to point out one other interesting line that I didn't really notice until I read it this go around. Uh, when he's talking about um, uh, secession, he says, physically speaking, we cannot separate. We cannot remove respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. So even in the mid-19th century, building an impassable wall was, you know, the president realized that this is not something that's possible. It's not going to happen. There's nobody to pay for it. We can't build an impassable wall. Lincoln said it. The Confederacy will pay for the the wall. If you succeed, you will pay for the wall. Who's going to pay for the wall? (laughs) The South. The South. Um, But anyway, that's funny. Someone in an inaugural address mentioned not building an impassable wall between two groups of people who may disagree with each other. So anyway, I thought that was funny. So any other uh, thoughts on the first inaugural? Um, I actually have a This Week in Lincoln for us this week, if that's all right with you all, and we'll go with that. Um, but first, any any concluding thoughts on the first inaugural? Well, I feel like in researching this, I've come to know the speech even better, and it it is in my top three of his speeches now at the triumvirate, as you said, mm-hmm. Jeremy, mm-hmm. like that was perfect. Yeah. You know, it's good. 
<laughs> that, that speech will scour. Isn't that what he said? He said after the Geisberger dress, like, I'm not sure that speech will scour. Um, yeah, I, th- I think so, too. I think it's it's often overshadowed by um, by the second inaugural, for sure, and the Gettysburg Address, obviously, as well. Um, I think it's also overshadowed in, like, the, you know, that's literally his first act as president, but looking at Fort Sumter and looking at secession and looking at what's going on. And um, this speech was very political in nature, whereas the other two were very much healing in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Gettysburg Address defined the war. The second inaugural aimed to define, I think, life after the war. Um, and this was kind of just a little bit more before the war, kind of saying what what is before the country, at least in terms of secession. So, Well, I think this and how he handled Horse Sumner really kind of lays out. I mean, his cabinet had to be like, ooh, this... This isn't the idiot we thought he was. This is somebody special. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you definitely see that when you look back at it. And you think about when you read this and you think about how he handled that. Um, yeah. So it's probably a little bit better than, you know, it's good. You know. <laughs> All right. It's good. A work. Give it a. I give it an A. <laughs> All right. He, he earned an A. So um, for our This Week in Lincoln, we always try to bring in some fun examples of Lincoln where he pops up in things other than historic research. Um, I, I do a little bit of running as a hobby, not fast or not well, but, um, so the weather's been getting nice here in Northern Illinois. So I've been out running a little bit more. My favorite, favorite, favorite race. I'm not able to run in this year, um, because of the time of the year. It's, um, always the first Saturday in April, which usually lines up with our spring break. It does not this year. It's the, the Abraham Lincoln presidential half marathon in Springfield. Um, it's, oh, it's great. It goes by, I think I may have mentioned on the show before, but it, um, it runs by Lincoln Home. It loops around to uh, the Capitol, the Illinois. It goes by the old. It starts at the old state Capitol, right outside the museum. Goes by Lincoln Home, comes up to the Capitol, and then it goes through some very scenic neighborhoods of Springfield, including Washington Park. Which how there's a Washington Park in Springfield, I don't know. Um, but then you end up running right through Oak Ridge Cemetery in front of Lincoln's tomb, and then you come back up. Um, tour of the museum very very cool and then you get a giant penny for your medal when you finish which is awesome nice. and there's yeah there's lincoln presenters there the starting gun is usually a seven gun um salute kind of thing by civil war reenactors it's cool anyway um i ran the 50th running of this i don't even know the year on it May, oh 2014 on april 5th of 2014 and on the 50th one, actually, they actually the medal was a $5 bill for that one. But the T-shirt for the race that year was amazing. Um, and it is, I'm holding it up so that the other rail spurs can see, but it is Abraham Lincoln wearing a track singlet with a, awesome. with a sweatband around, uh, around his head um, that says uh, LPHM, Lincoln Presidential Head Marathon. But um, this is the one race shirt that I wear like as a T-shirt. And I get tons and tons of compliments on it because it's it's pretty funny. Very clearly, it's like a Springfield Abraham Lincoln, so he does not have a beard, uh, but he does have a track singlet um, and a sweatband on his head, which I think is hilarious um, and fits kind of the idea of our this week in Lincoln. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's cool. So I'll tweet out a picture of it. It's one of my favorite T-shirts ever. So if you're in Springfield and you are a runner, I highly, highly, highly recommend that race. Unfortunately, my spring trip to Springfield this year will not be 
the day of the race it will be i think i'm going to be down there april 20 or april i think may march march 26th or 27th so all right so that was our this week in lincoln any parting thoughts um heading into this week uh next week's show we've got something very very excited for you we are going to have a guest on next week's show to talk about a very specific and very interesting story about Abraham Lincoln that I think everybody's going to enjoy. I'm very excited for next week's show, so make sure you check that out. Um, we'll kind of tweet a couple more teasers at you, and hopefully you'll be able to tune in and find that interesting. Um, please give us a rating on iTunes if you have a moment. That helps us get a little bit of visibility for folks trying to find podcast on abraham lincoln you can follow us on twitter at rail splitter pod we're also on instagram at rail splitter pod and you can always email us at the rail splitter podcast at gmail.com any parting thoughts mary or nick uh, i think that was uh an awesome discussion that we just had about the first inaugural and i have to say again like i thoroughly enjoyed researching it it was awesome yeah, it's a good read. I would recommend reading it, maybe if you haven't. Um, it's been a while since I read through it, so I actually enjoyed reading it. Um, yeah. And did you mention our Facebook group there? Oh, yeah. Please join our Facebook group. It's super fun. A lot of people share photos from various parts of the country um, where they've seen Lincoln show up, and uh, it's been quite a lot of fun to see people interact on that. We really, really appreciate um, those of you who have joined the Facebook group, uh, so jump on that. There's, you know, it won't crowd your feed, but it'll definitely populate your feed with some really interesting Lincoln stuff. Yeah, and then, I, then um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I'm going to. Um, yeah, keep it positive on the Facebook. You know, we're all here to share opinions and stuff. Um, and then I think we had a little beef going back and forth there, but um, I would say, you know what? Um, we're going to talk politics for good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is part of who we are. And I think we've talked about this and we're trying to relate it to modern day. I think that's one of the positive aspects of our show is we try to tie Lincoln in to the happenings of 2008. So, um, we are humans. We are going to lean one way, but at the same time, if somebody disagrees with us, you know, um, we, we can we can handle it too. You don't need to go out and bash people because that doesn't help either. Or I don't know if it was so much bash, but sarcastic replies probably aren't the way to go. We're looking for a good civil discussion, which I think we have for the most part there. So I completely um, agree with you, Nick. So yeah, well, it's been fun. I recommend joining. Um, it's always great when we get discussion like we had for the majority of that thread. Um, so just keep it up. Yeah, yeah. and we welcome thoughts from anybody. Criticism for sure would is totally welcome. Uh, just you know, um, I guess the only thing I can say is to uh, listen to our little closing every week. We say the same thing, um, and it's words I try to live by, and hopefully words everybody else tries to live by. So if you listen to the closing of the show and you think about that every time you talk to anybody. I don't think you're going to run into making people mad. So that's what I try to embody. And if somebody says that, hey, I think this part of your show is really bad, I really appreciate hearing that because we want to make it better. Um, sometimes you might say, like, hey, you know what, I really don't like this about your show. And we're going to say, you know what, I, I appreciate that. That's that's. Thank you for saying that. But we're not going to change that because, you know, it is our show. Um, but it's also your show. Um, as listeners and you know obviously without you there wouldn't be a show so we want that criticism we want that feedback um i thought that almost every almost every, to a letter almost everything was was fine 
Um, we just don't want anybody to feel offended by anything we say for sure. Um, and everybody else is free to comment whatever they want because you got a First Amendment. So that's totally fine. Uh, but part of the idea of the show is for um, talking about Lincoln and debating about Lincoln and saying, like, I think you're completely wrong. The first inaugural was about this, but not saying you're a complete idiot. <laughs> the First Amendment or the first inaugural was about this. Um, but you all know that, and I think everybody's been beautiful, and I think that that's great. Um, and if you're looking for some words to live by, always turn to Abraham Lincoln because he had many of them, including what we always leave the show with. So uh, for Mary and Nick, thank you both. Um, it was a very fun episode for me as well. So for everyone out there listening in Rail Splitter Nation, please keep continuing to walk the world with malice toward none and charity for all. And we'll see you next week.